Welcome to a brand new episode. Mike Driscoll, The Python Show. Hello and welcome to The Python Show with Mike Driscoll. And today I have a special guest, Tarek. Now, Tarek is a friend of mine that I've known for quite a while. And you might know him because he is one of the creators, or I, th- I believe the creator of Flake 8, a Python linter. Um, I believe he works for Elastic. And I'm just going to let him take it away and just tell us a little bit about himself. Sure. Well, uh, thanks for having me, uh, Mike. And hello, everyone. So, yeah, um, I've been around uh, the Python community for a while. And um, I'm really glad that we have the opportunity to talk a little bit. That's really nice. And mm-hmm. yeah, so I work at Elastic. Uh, uh, prior to that, I was working at uh, Mozilla, where I did a, mm-hmm. a bunch of Python. And um, yeah, so I, yeah, I, I created Flake 8 uh, originally, and I brag all the time about it. Hey, yeah, I created Flake 8. But <laughs> uh, the reality is that uh, I was just the initial creator, and then um, a bunch of other people took over the maintenance. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think the yeah the um, original idea I had was something that uh, really took off. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I'm curious just because you mentioned it, but what what does Mozilla use uh, Python for? If you if you can elaborate, uh, uh, what do what I? Did Mo- what does oh, Mozilla, Mozilla, yeah, okay, Mozilla okay. use? It? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, like. Just trying to recollect my memory. So yeah, uh, so uh, I came. Uh, I was hired at Mozilla right before uh, Firefox four uh, came out. Mm-hmm. So that was a while ago. Before we they got uh, crazy with the numbering, like <laughs> yeah. Uh, back then, uh, we didn't have a train release, and we were basically shipping uh, the new version w- when it was ready. And mm-hmm. Firefox four was a big deal. And back then, uh, um, Mozilla was not really into web services and stuff like that. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah. they had a, a few uh, websites and they started to uh, do a lot of stuff around Django. Uh, they built, uh, for example, the MDN, uh, the Mozilla Developer Network uh, website mm-hmm. and the add-ons website using uh, Django. And cool. uh, they started to uh, uh, get a lot of interest into Python and uh, they they started to implement web services. One of them was uh, Firefox Sync, which mm. is a small web service uh, uh, that gets uh, used when you want to sync bookmarks uh, across uh, mm. your devices. Uh, we were ahead of uh, Chrome back then, um, uh, of Google, sorry, back then, uh, because, like, for example, back in those days they didn't encrypt your data they were storing everything uh and clear on their side mm-hmm. and we really cared about privacy so uh in firefox sync everything is encrypted uh on the client side uh and everything that's stored on the server side is is uh fully encrypted so uh because we hmm. care about we we care a lot about uh, privacy at mozilla that's awesome and so back to why I joined, they, they they had this little PHP uh, service to do this on the top of uh, MySQL, and they were like, oh, maybe we should move to, to Python for this kind of service. 
mm-hmm. because uh, the way we deploy uh, we deployed back then uh, the services and stuff that like that it made a lot of uh, sense to move from PHP to Python. Yeah. So they looked for a Python expert. And I was like, hey, yeah, let's do this. So I, I was hired. Uh, I worked on um, on that service. And I had the opportunity to set up a good practice at Mozilla around Python. Uh, and well, now fast forward, uh, like uh, most people do Python. So it's, uh, but back then it was a big deal for Mozilla. Yeah. Uh, I was the Python guy for uh, the web services uh, uh, there. Uh, so yeah, that, that's how um, uh, Python got started at, at Mozilla uh, around web services and stuff like that. That's cool. So you're kind of the the Python godfather at Mozilla originally then? Yeah, kind of. Uh, and, and then they hired a lot of talents. So now, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, like in most companies, uh, it's not like uh, exotic stuff to be a Python developer anymore, I guess. Yeah. But back then, uh, the like in the Silicon Valley, uh, it was mostly PHP, Ruby, Ruby on Rails. Uh, Ruby was re re uh, uh, mm-hmm. the the tool uh, startup uh, used uh, to, to build some some features, and, and you can tell still today, like uh, like a big big apps like GitHub or some other big apps like that are like Ruby apps. So, huh? Interesting. I didn't know that. So, one uh, no, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, it, it's been a real chance for me to be there during that era um, because I could see Python growing into like big, like bigger company like this. Yeah. And uh, I witnessed how uh, the tone changed when people started to talk about Python. At, uh, back in the old days, it was really like, yeah, the little scripting language you can use on the site to do some like experiment or whatever. And then mm-hmm. if you're serious, if you want to do enterprise search, you have to do Java. If you want to do the web, it's PHP. And, and I, I, I was really there when I saw people like changing their um, impression about uh, Python, I guess. Yeah. Cool. Um, I just wanted to ask uh, how you got into programming in the first place. Was that like your first thing you wanted to do for your life journey or oh, did you just so, kind of fall into it or how that Yeah. Happen? So my mother is, uh, um, she was, she's retired now, a computer science uh, teacher. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm old enough that I, uh, I started to, poke at computers uh, before internet, you know, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm 46. So when I was a kid, um, my mother one day brought home uh, this little sharp computer. Uh, it, 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 yeah. I still have it. I kept it. It's in, it's in my uh, closet. <laughs> but basically, it looks like a giant uh, um, calculator. Hmm. And it was the first time we were we we had the ability to do programming uh, to print stuff um, directly on the the computer. Uh, so mm-hmm. we built like uh, you know those fractal uh, things you can build uh, with uh, some, some algorithm. So yeah. we 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 played with that, and I, I was like amazed by this. So uh, this is where I got my passion from. Uh, um, 
software uh, programming, uh, this little sharp device. Mm, and yeah. uh, as I got older, uh, I just loved programming. So um, after high school, I, I went to a, a computer science uh, uh, thing uh, at the university in France. And uh, yeah, since then, I mean, I was not really good at school uh, in high school, but uh, when I, I went into uh, uh, the university to do some uh, programming, uh, I was so obsessed with it. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I got uh, good at it because I, I was like, uh, I spent all my evenings uh, doing programming. Uh, so yeah, yeah. it became a, a kind of an uh, obsession and yeah, like it still is. Uh, I haven't lost that uh, spark uh, when I uh, uh, open VM and start to do some coding, so yeah, I totally get it. <laughs> I mean, when I when I started, I was like, "This is really hard. I don't really understand the, these abstract concepts." And then, then I think it was about two years in. I'm like, "If I don't start getting this soon, I don't know. I might have to switch degrees." And then it all started <laughs> to click, and I'm yeah. like, "I finally get it now. This is awesome." <laughs> yeah, and it's. Uh... This is the worst uh, um, um, job if you don't like programming. It's like a punishment. Like I see mm. some people in the in the uh, that are programmers and and like I see they don't have that passion and they hate it. Those people yeah. end up being like project managers or or like uh, uh, team leads or whatever uh, and. Mm -hmm. Because you can't do coding for 20 years if you don't have that passion for, for coding. Uh, yeah. And it's very specific. Like uh, the uh, the college where I went to, the university where I went to, uh, I became a teacher there like 10 years after, like to mm -hmm. uh, provide some uh, uh, courses. Like they, they used to do that, like hire professional uh, to do like uh, two hours per week with folks. Mm -hmm. And interacting with the, the kids, you, you you know already which one will like be programmers and which one will go to other direction. Yeah. Just by talking about the code and the passion they have around the code, because yeah, it's uh, I think it's important to have that uh, passion. I totally agree. Yeah, I've, I have plenty of coworkers I had over the years, and some are like they're just not in it, and some are some are so passionate. They don't even, you know, time has no meaning for them. They're, they get into the zone and they stay in the zone. And yeah, and and this is especially true for pe people from the Python community. Like, if you work for big companies, uh, like um, um, at some point in my career, I was working with like uh, large uh, uh, government uh, teams in Paris, mm -hmm. and. Uh, some people like the specific stuff about Python. It track it attracts people that are really passionate about uh, coding. You mm -hmm. will find uh, uh, interesting people in that community. People like uh, that used, for example, to be a phil philosophy teacher at the university and started mm -hmm. uh, a side gig in in programming. You will find like artists that uh, have uh, like a musician background and stuff like that. There is yeah. a, a. I feel like uh, Python, uh, the Python community attracts uh, people that uh, have a passion for coding without necessarily being into the the usual path of yeah, uh, I was in college, I did this, that, became an engineer, yeah. 
See what I mean? Oh yeah, yeah. My my brother went and got a psychology degree, and now he's a network engineer, and he's starting to learn Python. And I'm like, I told you you should have started with Python at <laughs> the beginning, but he didn't listen. So yeah, yeah, and 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 this is what I, I really enjoyed when I, I was going to uh, uh, Python PyCons uh, conferences or Plone conferences. Mm-hmm. Like you, 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 you get to meet like super interesting people uh, uh, that build yeah. crazy stuff with uh, with Python, which is really cool. It is super cool. Speaking of which, how did you end up choosing Python? Because I'm I'm sure you didn't get taught Python in university. So how did you get into it? Right. So uh, yeah, uh, back in my days, uh, everything was C plus plus and Java in the university. And so what happened is mm-hmm. that my first job was using Delphi, or, or do, do you say Delphi in uh, in English? Uh, it's uh, from I Borland. I've never, I know what you're talking about, but I don't know anyone who actually uses it. Okay, so basically it's uh, MVC uh, uh, that is based on uh, uh, Pascal. Uh, mm-hmm. Like it's a variation of the Pascal language with uh, OOP and stuff like that. Yeah. And I, I love it, it's really cool. And my first job was building a... Uh, a software for retailers, like uh, to manage uh, mm-hmm. stocks and, and stuff like that, uh, yeah. like uh, for like companies that are like Walmart or whatever, like the French mm-hmm. version. And at some point, uh, uh, when, when you use this programming, they had something called uh, VTLs. It was components to extend uh, uh, how you uh, work with your program. For example, if you wanted to do some uh, uh, networking, you would use a network component built by another company and you would buy it. And I got super frustrated because uh, uh, we had bugs in some of them and the company that built them uh, was not really responsive and uh, they asked us for money to fix the bugs and stuff like that. Mm. And one day I found a collection of components uh, that were called Indie Components. And I started to look at this and it was open source. And this, this was my first contact with open source. Oh, wow. Okay. I can I can like actually dig into the code, find out what's uh, going on, etc. And it's not uh, something that is held um, uh, by a company. It's a community of people. Wow, that's... Amazing! I, I can like interact mm-hmm. with folks and 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 build some 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 uh, uh, code with them, and it completely uh, blew my mind. So I wanted to do open source. Yeah. So I looked at what existed out there, uh, and I wanted to 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 build something or, or like to have fun in projects with people, mm-hmm. where it was not only about the money; it was about uh, building stuff together uh, in a creative way and i found zoop and i started to build some stuff with zoop and i loved it and zoop is in python this is uh where i started to 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 do some real stuff with uh, python and i created uh, the uh, python uh, user group in france so um cool I created a website around this technology because I loved it. Uh, some people started to to join my. Uh, it was like a BB forum, a PHP BB forum, mm-hmm. and uh, I told them, "Well, oh, we should meet. We we should do a user group." And we all met in Paris, and we created the uh, French Python user group, uh, the FP, 
And yeah. I, I was a uh, president of that group, uh, that uh, user group for 10 years. And uh, yeah, this is how I came into uh, the Python world. That's cool. It kind of reminds me, kind of reminds me a little bit of my own journey because I, there wasn't any Python groups here in Iowa either. And so I ended up starting one because I'm like, I want to meet more people who use Python and just talk about it with other people. Yeah, that's awesome. And yeah, exactly. I, I think you and I have a, like a little bit of a similar path in, in, that, mm -hmm. in that community, like trying to meet more people, organize some stuff with groups and try to, yeah, so that's, that's really cool. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, you know, I, I really like Flakegate, but I'd like to know if you could just <laughs> tell me a little bit about its history. How did it come about? Right. So, um, um, when I um, worked with uh, some Python project, I wanted to do, to have some quality like everyone. And back then, we had a few tools available. We had uh, uh, PyFlake. We yep. had Pepate. We had Pilot. Mm -hmm. And I had this uh, make file where I had the three of them and I had different commands. I was like super frustrated by the overhead of having to call several tools to uh, basically uh, lint and, and fix my, my project. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, maybe I could write a single command line uh, that drives them all. And yep. uh, this is how I created the Flakate. I was like, yeah, I want one single command line <laughs> and I don't want to be bothered about the details of the option I need to pass to PyFlake, the option I need to pass to Pepate or mm -hmm. whatever. And back then I, I, I also wanted to use MacCab, which is a, a stuff to mm -hmm. calculate the complexity. This is why you have it uh, built in uh, Flakate. And and the first version of Flakeate I, I released was basically this ID. You just run one command, and it does everything yep. for you. It's it's not it's not a like a crazy ID or like a, a very innovative, but mm -hmm. uh, the fact that the community back then had so many different tools, it took off because people were like, yeah, I don't want to uh, worry about. Yeah that crazy complex uh, pilot uh, configuration file or whatever. I just want to make sure that what I do with my project uh, meets uh, the standards uh, the Python community use. Mm -hmm. so I'll just use Flakeate because if I use it, uh, I'm kind of guaranteed that uh, what I do is uh, what people do out there most of the time. A little bit like what Black is doing for formatting. Uh, mm -hmm. why uh, bother doing that uh, yourself when a tool can automate it? So, yeah, yeah and so um, I made it pluggable and uh, uh, worked a little bit to, to push it. And at some point it took off and I was busy on other projects. Uh, so uh, I gave the maintenance over to other folks and mm -hmm. it really took off uh, with the work other folks did on it, like... Uh, so uh, now I just I'm just the guy bragging that I'm the original author, <laughs> but 95% uh, of the work done there was uh, done by the the other uh, other folks. Do you still contribute to it at all, or do you just leave it to the other people now? So um, that's interesting. So basically, uh, um, I wanted to contribute back at some point, and 
uh, I discovered another tool called Rough, mm-hmm. uh, which is a uh, tool written in, in Rust yep. that basically does everything uh, Flake8 does mm-hmm. much faster, uh, better. So basically now I'm just like, yeah, okay, well, Flake8 was nice, but I think uh, people should use Rough. So if I were to contribute to something, I would contribute to Rough. Okay. Uh, I know that uh, the guy implemented also, uh, he wants to implement a black support directly in Rough, which mm-hmm. again uh, uh, is aligned with my vision of having a single tool for all these uh, things. Yep. And ultimately, I just want to call rough and you're done. The other project I, I have in mind that is very similar uh, to that concept is uh, Perf8. Okay. Uh, so I started a project called Perf8 at Elastic where I want to be able to do uh, performance reports on your code using mm-hmm. a single command line. So it includes C profile, of course. It includes yeah. PySpy, it includes um, uh, Memray. Uh, uh, I'm using PSUtil to do some report about CPU memory usage and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the whole stuff creates a single report, unified report. It's pluggable, same ID than uh, Flycate. Mm-hmm. That's why I called it uh, Perfate. And uh, we use that uh, at Elastic uh, in the CI to produce a performance report when you run uh, uh, our stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know if uh, that's going to be used by the community. I have no idea, but hmm. uh, it's it's around the same idea. Uh, I don't want to bother about picking the right uh, tools. I want to run a, a report uh, about the performances yeah. and I want it to be a no-brainer. So the tool will instrument your, you do perfect and the, the script and it runs mm-hmm. script exactly like if you, you uh, in the bash, if you would call, I don't know, a, a nice space, your, your script is going to run it. Mm-hmm. Same ID and, and then it, huh. it generates a report. Does it uh, output different types of reports like PDF, HTML? So right now it just generates uh, a single file HTML report. Okay. And uh, I don't know if uh, for the podcast you have uh, links uh, that you provide to uh, people listening, but... uh, I do. Okay, cool. So we can put some links there so I can show uh, what kind of report it uh, generates. It generates uh, CSV files. Okay. And a single uh, HTML file that embeds everything, and you have like a, a nice UI where you can click and see all the graphs, and I generate uh, the graphs using a, a Matplotlib, okay, uh, which is a fairly standard. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that's it. Like it doesn't do any diff with previous rounds. It doesn't do any anything fancy. It just mm-hmm. spits out interesting data about what happens when you run code. And for for us, for Elastic. It's super useful. For example, there is one report about uh, uh, the event loop to know if your code blocks the event loop. So let's say, for example, okay. you have um, you have this cool event loop-based project. It's fully async. And mm-hmm. then you have one developer that creates that function that blocks everything. 
uh, and everything gets slow because you have a loop that's not async and uh, grabs the event loop for a while. So how do you detect this? Uh, so there is a mm -hmm. report that shows you that uh, 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 the lag of the event loop grows uh, and we can detect that, this kind wow. of stuff. That sounds really cool. I mean, <laughs> that, that's definitely something I'm going to go check out after this. I want to I want to go play with that tool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and you know what? I, I'd love contributors and... and uh, uh, I think it can be really useful for for some project. For uh, like the other part where it's, it's useful for us, we've built a, a, a framework to uh, um, a pluggable framework to uh, ingest data into Elasticsearch. Uh, so you can write mm -hmm. your own little uh, connectors. Like say, for example, if you have MySQL uh, and you want to grab some data from MySQL to Elasticsearch, so we provide a framework for this. Everything is. Uh, pretty nice, but it's easy for us to have someone uh, uh, creating a, a connector that's going to blow the memory mm -hmm. by, by doing some, uh, I don't know, like if you have like some caching or whatever, and you start to pull a lot of data, you can, you can go crazy in memory. You can like uh, uh, kill a, a server really easily. Yeah. So with Perfate, I have this nightly uh, test that... Uh, uh, exercise your connector and perfect mm -hmm. will detect uh, if you go past a certain uh, threshold of uh, of uh, ram usage okay and if it detects it it's going to tell you well sorry uh, um, you went over i don't know 300 megabyte in rss you should check what's happening and then you yeah. go to the report and you get the memory report where you can dive in into uh, your uh, app and see where the memory used is used uh, to to fix hmm. it that sounds really helpful. Cool. I haven't I haven't really used memory very much yet. That's also on my to-do list. Uh, memory? Yeah. Yeah, for, for us, it's pretty important because uh, in the app I'm building today, uh, it's mostly IO-bound uh, uh, services uh, that uh, there is a lot of data transiting and mm -hmm. the the cost is about uh, the RAM. Like, uh, so okay. if you can limit uh, your RAM usage, it's it's uh, cheaper, I guess. It's more efficient. So it's all about making sure that you use the less RAM possible um, when you uh, grab data somewhere and send it uh, somewhere mm -hmm. else. Is that something you think is easy to do in Python or is that more difficult than like other languages? Or do you know? Well, it's uh, a little bit uh, more difficult in Python because in Python, uh, as opposed to C or C++, you can't really infer the size uh, of objects uh, from mm -hmm. the interpreter uh, because uh, it's a hidden word. Like if you do a, a sys, uh, get size of an object, you, you don't get the real size. Yeah. But there are tools uh, out there uh, that uh, provide this kind of feature and I've included a lib in, uh, in Perfect to do that. And so basically, okay. uh, uh, it can uh, like find out the real heap size, uh, the real size of your object in the Python heap, uh, and, and, and tell you that. Cool. So we've talked about rough and Perfect and Black a little bit. 
Are there any other tools you consider to be essential when working with Python code? <sighs> um, well, for <laughs> QA, I think that's it. Uh, for building apps, uh, I think uh, it's it's interesting. Uh, um, to see what people doing are doing with the async programming. Mm-hmm. And I think at this point, uh, if you start to build an app, it should be async. It should be a no-brainer to to build it in an async fashion. Okay. Um, um, Do you recommend... That, yeah, sorry? Do you recommend the Python async library? Or are you talking about one of the third-party libraries? Well, uh, the uh, async IO lib in Python is pretty mature at this point. You can do a bunch mm-hmm. of stuff with it. Uh, when you have to build uh, web services and stuff like that, you can use like AIO HTTP. That's what I use. Uh, yeah. And there are like higher level frameworks uh, that are available in the community. But uh, I don't have like a strong uh, preference. Uh, most of the time I use plain AIO HTTP. Like it's it's yeah. uh, sufficient for, for what I do, both on the client side and, and on the server side. Um, there is a fast API. I know it's very popular right now, mm-hmm. uh, but it uh, for me, it opened a cans of worms, which is uh, type annotation. I'm a little bit nervous mm-hmm. about this because every time I see a, a Python app with a bunch of type annotation, I don't see Python anymore. I see a different language. And that makes <laughs> me nervous. That makes me really yeah. nervous. And I know it's useful. I know a lot of people uh, love it. Uh, I don't know. I feel like when I see a, a Python module filled with annotation, I'm like, okay, guys, maybe you should write Rust directly. Why, why bother <laughs> writing Python? Like at, at this point, you, you've done uh, all the type annotation. Mm-hmm. What benefit for you to stay in in, uh, in Python in this piece of code? Uh, well, maybe the the library ecosystem. Maybe I don't know. Uh, I, I don't think know. that's mostly it. Is you know, Python has all the packages. Yeah, and a lot of them. I mean, it's got two hundred and forty libraries in the standard library. So you know, throwing that all away and trying to re- recreate the real multiple times in Rust would be a pain. Yeah, but yeah, I, I know. I've I've been very torn about the whole type hinting thing yeah. in Python. Um, it is really useful if a lot of the engineers on your team come from like a C++ background or a Rust background. It helps them get into that code quicker. Yeah. But yeah, I you know, I don't think it looks as nice. So oh, no, it it makes it, it uh make my eyes bleed. <laughs> uh but it, maybe it's just because I'm this uh, old guy and I'm so used to uh like vanilla python. Maybe it's just uh that yeah. I need to to, to adapt, but um, for me, it's uh, a glorified uh, uh, unit test. We moved from uh, uh, your test modules in, directly into the code to make it easy, <laughs> easy to test uh, and uh, add a little bit of uh, nice automation so you don't have to write uh, uh, some of the tests. Uh, but uh, for me, it's hmm. just uh, it adds so much cognitive load that can be, and uh, what I like to do is choosing good names. 
And I think mm -hmm. when you choose good names and you do what we used to call uh, uh, Pythonic code, uh, the uh, uh, needs for type annotation is, uh, for me, it's less appealing. Uh, so yeah, I think I think the only argument I've seen that I really that I really like in the code base, the two code bases I've seen it used, is the ones that have lots of abstract base classes where it makes it really yeah. hard to tell what the object is. Yeah. And the other one I had was um, I had a package that I had to interface with called Squish. And what Squish would do is it would inject into a C++ Qt app and basically into the Python runtime. And so it would have all this stuff that you didn't know was actually there, but you could use it in your right. Python code. And typing that stuff out was really helpful because it could actually overwrite like bool and int and some other stuff. And it would make a code act weird if you didn't know what it was doing. And then in those cases, I could actually see typing being helpful yeah. because you're like, what the heck is going on here? But um, yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. I know what you're saying because that's the, exactly how I felt when typing the typing modules first added. I'm like, what do we need this for? Um, it has been helpful to me in the past. I'm still not sure about it. So I'm not going to completely diss it, but I'm also like, I really like the plain stuff. And most of my books only show regular Python without the type yeah. Same, same. And, but like, for example, in uh, my current project, uh, I plugged uh, PyWrite. Mm -hmm. uh, PyWrite is, uh, you know, uh, it, it uh, does uh, type checking, uh, but it works on plain Python as well. It does a little bit of inference. And it uses uh, the typing that was uh, shipped into the standard lib or some libs. Mm -hmm. And it does catch some issues. Uh, yep. uh, like, and so that, that's cool. I mean, uh, maybe, maybe there is a middle ground where you hide your type annotation somewhere. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, because you can do that. You can uh, uh, provide all your type annotation info in, in a separate file. So maybe mm -hmm. that's uh, that's a good way to do it. So when people open your code, uh, they don't cry because it's like it's like <laughs> another language. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know either. I'm, I'm, I wish there was a better way to do it, though. Yeah. But anyway, um, let's uh, switch topics and talk about why you decided to write a book about Python. Because I know you've had a book out there. I think you've had a couple of different editions of it as well. Yeah, I wrote uh, five books. So some of them are, are in French, okay. so they're not really known. And it's, the French market is very small, like because most people uh, now mm -hmm. uh, in France, when they uh, buy uh, books, it's in English. Uh, like, But back when yeah. I started, it was a big deal for people to have a book in French. So uh, I wrote mm -hmm. a book about Python in French. It was one of the first books in French. Mm -hmm. So... Um, so the the motivation for me to write Python was to get better at Python. To write a Python yeah. book was to get better at it. Yeah. Uh, because, well, you know, I mean, you, you've been there. Uh, when you write a book, uh, <laughs> you try not to say crap, right? You want yes. to make sure that. So you have to investigate and get all the way there to understand exactly what you're going, you're talking about. Mm. And that's, really uh, take you to the like uh, uh, stage where you have to master the topic you're, you're talking about. 
Yes. So, and for me, it, it, the goal was uh, to uh, write the book I would want to read and understand. Mm-hmm. So that was the main motivation. Yep. Yeah, I mean that's what I did it did it too was yeah. So this is the book I wanted when I started programming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But now I, I mean the market is saturated. Uh, there are so many books in so many topics. So uh, yes, it's and the it changed. Like I think people are more into micro contents now. Like um, mm-hmm. uh, the only incentive I have to to buy a book now is if I have like a long uh, flight and I can focus on a topic for a long time, you know, you have the book in the hand. But other than that, I think people are more into micro content. Uh, So, Yeah, there are a couple of niche topics I've seen that I think a lot of people can get get value from a book, like some... Some of the pandas books I've seen are really good because they actually have a whole collection and you don't have to go across, you know, 10 different websites and find mediocre to really high quality examples when you could just get a book of high quality examples. Yeah, that makes sense. I I agree. It's it's kind of painful. I like uh, LinkedIn learning for this uh, because when you find good content on LinkedIn, like a mm-hmm. guy talking about AI or whatever. Yeah. Well, then you can follow that guy and you have like, uh, you're going to have like all the course he made or she made uh, on the topic. Mm-hmm. And if it's good quality, you know, you're going to have a, a great series of uh, content uh, there. I'm taking LinkedIn uh, uh, learning as an example, but there are many different platforms that do mm-hmm. this. The idea of following uh, one person uh, because you know they produce great content is, is a good idea, I think. Yeah. And uh, when they do smaller uh, uh, content, uh, it's out there more often. Yeah. Like uh, so, I, I don't want uh, I don't want to wait two years to get your next book, right? Uh, I want mm-hmm. your your small blog post and, and your stuff, I guess. Yeah, totally get it. Yeah, I, I that's why I do a lot of my content as. You know, even tweets. A lot of people get a lot of value out of my tweets, which yeah, yeah. which seems silly to me. I'm like, they're what, 280 characters at at most. But yeah, but it's uh, they're directly connected to your thread of thoughts. So that's awesome. I mean, yeah, I agree. It just, it just seems weird to me. That's not where I where I thought I'd be. I'm like, I'm writing books, but I think yeah. I get more. You know, I think I have way more followers and way more uh, interactions with Twitter folk than I do. With my book reader folk. Yeah. So can you uh, tell us about any lessons you've learned from writing a book or updating your book that you'd like to share? Um, yeah. So uh, I, I think uh, the main lesson is don't worry too much about the table of content and uh, uh, push okay. back when the editor really wants you to provide a table of content uh, that is uh, set in stone, this is uh, Mm -hmm. uh, not possible. The content will evolve as you write it. And the biggest frustration I have with books, by the time I finish it, I want to start again. Because Mm -hmm. if I go back to the uh, first stuff I've, I've, I've written for the book, 
I found them crappy. I want to rewrite them. And it's a, yeah. it's a cycle that never ends. So you have to, to stop and say, okay, uh, I'm going to stop. It's never going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other stuff also is to be ready to, to get uh, uh, bad feedback from some random folks here and there. Uh, when I wrote my first book, it was a good book. Uh, I had good uh, feedback. But mm -hmm. some people were like, I don't know, sometimes you get a few nasty comments uh, about what you did. And I took it personally and uh, yeah. that didn't feel good. And so you have to learn that uh, when you write books, you're exposed and you have to be uh, ready uh, about that. When you're exposed, mm -hmm. uh, you get, uh, uh, you have to make sure you, you don't get uh, sad because I don't know, uh, uh, John from from whatever place that uh, your book is a piece of crap. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I have to be really careful when I I go look at Amazon reviews of my books. I'm like, oh, hell don't look no, at yeah. any, don't look at the negative ones. If I look at any of them, it's only the positive ones because then, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And research tend to prove that uh, books that are have like a. a a mix of negative and uh, positive comment on Amazon are the one that sell better uh, than the one that have a hundred percent positive comment because it's always uh, um, uh, how can I say that it's uh, it, it feels fake if if uh, mm -hmm. you have a five star for for everything yeah and uh, the marketing uh, of like uh, editors now they they. They are focusing on uh, making the perfect Amazon reviews for you. Mm -hmm. It's all fake. Uh, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Hell no. I'm not reading uh, Amazon comments anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you get if you get those or sometimes you'll get someone on, on social media who's like, I don't know, they just they just don't like you for some reason. Yeah. You have to realize sometimes people don't like you and it's okay to block them. So. Yeah. One thing uh, I loved about writing books is like two years after I wrote a book, I get uh, a random ping by someone. Hey, mm -hmm. I love your book. Uh, I became an engineer because I loved it. And uh, uh, I, I discovered Python or, hey, uh, thank you for writing this book, like personal uh, pingbacks like that on uh, like yeah. my email. That's gold. Like I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm. I did this exactly for that reason. And that guy over there in that country uh, found my book useful uh, and mm -hmm. that's that's the that's gold i totally agree so if anyone's listening to this uh, <laughs> today or in the future you know say thank you to the authors and the content creators and and the people who do open source work because uh complimenting them and thanking them makes them feel so nice and it oh, makes yeah. it all worth it Oh yeah, it's all about our ego, right? <laughs> just, <laughs> a little just bit. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> it's more about uh, knowing that somebody's actually reading it because you're like throwing this stuff out into the void, and you don't know, you don't really know what people think of it. Yeah, yeah, true, true. All right. Well, I want to just thank you so much for taking the time to come be on the Python show and share all of your great knowledge. It's really good to hang out with you and and just chat about all these things. Well, thank, thanks a lot for having me. It's uh, it's always a pleasure interacting with you, Mike. So thanks for, for this. Yeah, no problem. Hopefully we can do this again sometime soon. Yeah, absolutely. All right. 
Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. Make sure to follow us on Twitter. Mike Driscoll, The Python Show. 